Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray and I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my MMU colleagues Dave Porter. Hello Dave. Hi Pete. And Jeremy Craddock. Hi Jez. Hi Pete. And we'll be hearing today from another MMU journalism colleague, Eleanor Shember Critchley, on some of the ethical issues around journalists approaching bereaved families after events such as at the arena bombing. We'll also be hearing from some of our own students about ethical issues that they've encountered in their own reporting for the Northern Quota news website. We'd love to hear what you think about that or anything else we're covering today on Bang to Rights. Remember you can tweet at us at Rights Bang so please do get in touch and we'll be casting an ear over the first ever live Twitter session from the House of Commons. But first a quick dash around what you've been watching or reading this week. Uh, Jez, what have you been looking at? Yeah Pete, um, a story that uh, caught my eye. Um, referring to the Ipso code of practice, uh, the Samaritans are uh, calling on papers to um, sort of not refer to uh, suicide locations in reports of suicides and inquests, oh, right, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, they're feeling that, that by doing so, it's it's sort of um, leading to um, more people taking their own lives, you know, that sort of copycat element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I understand Ipso are now seeking views from journalists on whether, under Clause 5 of the Code, whether location could be, you know, come under the excessive detail of method that's Yeah, because until now it's been sort of method, hasn't it? Yes. And so whether you bring in location as well yeah. as part of that. So yeah, interesting. interesting to see how that will play out. But whether that will become too restrictive, you know, if you're covering an inquest and, you know, it, it, obviously it's a relevant factor, isn't yeah. it? And particularly if it's a public, you know, public uh, location. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but interesting to want to see how that develops. Yeah. And, and Dave, what about yourself? Uh, it was interesting to see some, see some uh, fresh guidelines issued to the courts, uh, particularly to court staff, just really reminding them of the rights that the media have to yeah. access to the courts, to access to materials, to to uh, charge sheets, to actually to just to be able to attend, actually, you know. And very often it's the court ushers who are, you know, like the school ter- caretaker, know everything that's going on, mm-hmm. but sometimes don't know the, uh, the, the finer points of the law, etc. So... Um, it's fantastic that these guidelines have been issued again, but it's slightly depressing that we're still having to... We're kind of still fight, having fight to return to, to them time and time yeah, again. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah. But yes, a timely reminder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all this comes for me as I've been watching the the Electoral Commission. They, they've they turned up at a hearing of the uh, DCMS committee, the Media and Culture and Sport Committee, um, this week. They welcomed the prospect of branding or imprinting all political advertising during campaign periods as a way of kind of avoiding a repeat of the controversy over funding of the Vote Leave campaign, for example, during the Brexit referendum that we've seen lately. The head of the Electoral Commission, Claire Bassett, was speaking during that session this week. Um, The the DCEMS committee are doing an inquiry into fake news, Cambridge Analytica and so on. Coincidentally, Tuesday's session was the first time, according to the chair of the committee, Damien Collins, MP, that select committee proceedings have been officially live streamed over Twitter. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he asked Claire Bassett if she believes regulation of political advertising needs to keep pace with digital technology. Some of this goes to broad issues of, of internet regulation and internet harm. Um, you know, the, the attack is on you in it because it's a political nature, but, but there are similar attacks to other people that aren't political which have the same thing. So I think it's really important not to uh, have sort of scope creep of the Electoral Commission uh, into areas where actually about broad internet regulation and internet harm, which other regulators or other potential organisations would be better. 
face well, to do. I suppose the, the, the distinction between freedom of speech and political advertising is that freedom of speech might be organic, mm. people are yeah. expressing an opinion. And that's different from someone saying, I want to create an audience for my political opinion by spending money against it as a form of advertising. Yeah. And probably historically, most political advertising took place during election periods. But now, it, now you know, the internet makes it easy for it to take place yeah. throughout, the, throughout the year. And do you think there should be um, common standards that apply to the transparency around who political advertisers are that exist throughout the year and not yeah. just during the regulated we'd, period? We'd be really interested in being part of the discussion that looks at that. I think I'm just being a little bit cautious because I think there's some real challenges of definition uh, that I mentioned earlier mm. within that and there's some real challenges about how you would actually do it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and we shouldn't be thinking about it mm. and we'd be very keen to be part of any discussion that does that but I, I think we would need to, to think it through and I think any code like that also would have to be statutory because if it's voluntary the very people that you want to catch you probably wouldn't engage. So there's Claire Bassett of the Electoral Commission speaking to the DCMS Select Committee on Tuesday. The committee is due to publish its final report on fake news, Cambridge Analytica, Facebook and the future of political advertising before the end of this year. Branding, Dave, on political adverts on social media, would it work? I think so. I think it's it's a long time coming. Uh, we're entering into this, this very thorny and murky waters, um, as you say, with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and everyone. You know, the amount of money that's been spent on, on political adverts uh, and political campaigns are, online is phenomenal. We know that Labour are very, very good at these uh, campaigns. You know, Jeremy Corbyn's um, campaign was said to be super slick. Yeah. Um, so that's where, where, where people are and, of course, where the majority is. It's where parties are going to go, but it's how you regulate that and make sure it's transparent mm. uh, and, and not, you know, presented as news, uh, which in effect is comment and an appeal to voters. Um, so, and also the, the whole point about, uh, you know, attracting voters by the uh, who they are, you know, um, being targeted effectively. That's the key thing there as well. Yeah, interesting that Claire Bassett talked in, in there about sort of freedom of speech issues. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's sometimes hard for me to reconcile the idea that just by branding something, you're restricting people's freedom of speech. It seems to me it's, it's mm-hmm. much more transparent that way around. Because printed literature um, during elections and referendums has to carry the imprint, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. So, so I, you'd I think, well, why not online as well? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people, when they pick up those leaflets, they know straight away that there's an agenda behind them. And, and I think at the moment with online, that line is definitely blurred. Yeah, because you think so. a, lot of those, a lot of those advertisers who are being paid to do this, mm. after all, by the political parties or the mm. campaign groups, that they're, they're trying to hood, hoodwink the public into believing that this was their next door neighbour or their friend who yes, created this not yes, not yes. some pr company absolutely yes yeah. Yeah. yeah so jez I, you and i both caught part of this live feed at any rate on twitter i was on the rights bang um twitter feed looking at, at stuff for the day and then this popped up that this was i it was actually the tail end of the live feed that i saw on mm. twitter but it's interesting that they should they should start doing this i think so i think it's um it's good for democracy isn't it? it's another you know, another way of trying to engage with the uh, electorate, you know, putting the information out there. I mean, we've had live TV broadcasts from Parliament for, what, 25 years now. I I welcome it. And um, 
I had a look at the, the Twitter feed after, after the event, but it was interesting to be able to drop into it. I mean, it was, it was three hours long, but you could sort of, you know, dip into different parts of it and find yeah, the section that yeah, you were interested I, By the time I got to this was the back end of it when, when the Advertising Standards Authority were on, and I think there was only eight people watching. Oh. Which, yeah, uh, yeah. Not brilliant, but, you know, it maybe it needs to get up a, a bit of a head of steam. It might gather, yeah. it might grow some legs. First one, so I'm sure it will, it will grow, and people will get used to knowing that it's there as well. Yeah. Okay, so do you have a view on that? Please do tweet at us um, at RightsBang. Let us know. So here on Bang to Rights, for several weeks now, we've been asking people, listeners, and particularly students, to come on and sort of ask us questions that we can respond to during the podcast. So um, at the moment, I'm with um, Sophia Khan, and we just nipped out of the the media law lecture to have a quick chat about one question that you wanted to ask, because you were reporting for the Northern Quota, um, speaking to some asylum seekers weren't you? And there were issues about identifying them and photographing them and so on. So what were the issues that came up for you when you were doing that job? I think uh, some ethical issues on whether I would be permitted to enter a property without the landlord's consent and take certain photographs. I mean, these photos look like they were photos that would be of public interest. So uh, entering this uh, property and taking photos and not just that, uh, dealing with the identity of the asylum seekers too. So these things did uh, raise my raise concerns for me. And in the end, you decided not to identify the asylum seekers and you, kind of, you, you made a point of doing that. And I, I think a lot of people would understand why you did that because they're in a very, very vulnerable position, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did. I did feel for them, and many of them were quite afraid to talk to me because they do have asylum claims, and they're afraid their asylum claims might might go the way they don't want the, want it to go. So, so I did make a point of not identifying them and going with that and understanding their needs too. Okay, so I mean, it's interesting. One of the one of the things that that came up in my mind when you asked that question before we recorded this was there is an inquiry that there has been inquiry by the Home Office Select Committee in, in Parliament and now the government's likely to legislate on it basically forbidding people to take undercover photographs inside asylum detention centres um, now that's not the circumstances that you were in is it you were in well explain to me what the circumstances were when you were doing this story well, uh, I, I got in touch with an asylum seeker and she allowed me into her property, into the flat that she was staying at. So so that was so that is why I chose to take the photos. Uh, if she hadn't, then maybe I would have thought twice about it. She was living there at the time. She was moving her stuff, so that's why I took the photos. I don't think I didn't break in or enter anything like that. And I took the decision purely because the asylum seekers had still had their belongings there and still had some sort of connection to the property. Okay, well, I think you're in the right. Let's hear now what Dave and Jez think about it. Yeah, great, Pete. I think what a you know for what a, uh, a young reporter to be going out and getting these stories is fantastic. I, I've kind of been in the background uh, with Sophia watching her do this. Um, she's been telling me her progress and how she's been getting on, and uh, she just played it down the line perfectly. Really, she's not revealed the identities of the. Uh, the asylum seekers, she just used anonymised first names, etc. Mm. Um, she's not taken any pictures. What she has done, effectively, is, you know, um, I suppose, breached Clause 10 by 
some slight deception by not saying who she was because she was saying that she was getting a bit of uh, some funny questions by the landlord. Um, but of course, under an obligation because of public interest. Massive uh, public interest in the story. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah. Um, it's not as if she was actively um, taking part in you know subterfuge or deception, but mm. she just wasn't um, saying who she was effectively, why she was taking pictures, mm. um, which is perfectly uh, plausible and reasonable to do under the code. So. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a textbook uh, story this to, to be for her to be doing. Yeah, Jez. Yeah, it, I think it's a great example of a, of a journalist setting out the stall as a, a you know as an ethical journalist, sort of navigating the ethics and the uh, issues that you you come up against when you're doing these kinds of stories. And a good one for our students, particularly level six, who are doing law and ethics, to have a look at the, the at Sophia's story. Yeah. And see how what you know what she produced at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good example, and I think it's great to hear, great to see that the students are are producing this kind of stuff. You know, mm. sort of serious, cutting edge stuff, um, and and serious public interest stories. And we'll come back to that later on in the podcast when mm. we're looking at some of the reporting that uh, that the students have been doing on Northern Quota about some of the demonstrations that are going on in the city um, and, and a variety of them. So we'll we'll hear a little bit more from from one of the students, Alex, uh, about all of that. Um, but before we do that. Back now, back first to that question we mentioned at the very top of the programme, whether journalists should be more constrained about how they contact bereaved families, another big ethical issue for all of us. Because we all know that civility, sensitivity and often a good amount of patience are part of our code of conduct at these times. But Dave, during our interview the other day with David Collins of the mm. Sunday Times, he told us about how greater restraint on the part of editors and reporters was now the order of the day under the Ipso regulator. Let's hear the second part of that interview now. When you get situations, for example, where something happens and everybody wants to interview the family, so everybody's knocking on the family's doors, and that was yeah. a big problem, I think, of the sure. Manchester bomb, yeah. because what you've got is... Under the Ipso code, you can approach once. <coughs> if the family says no, mm. that is it. And a desist. reporter, dis yeah, it's like a cease and desist. You do it once and then that's it. Which, in my experience, most reporters do. The mm. problem comes when you've got 25, 30, 50 yeah. publications Pack and they're all doing it like that. Yeah. So, they're all, so they're getting approaches from 50-odd people um, again and again. Yeah. So that's when that is, and I can yes, see... Hand. Yeah, and it does. And it mm. happens all the time it's not just with a manchester bomb it happens with day-to-day -day stories yeah. but it's more well, i remember inside the bbc there were very often different programs dozens of different programs from inside the bbc trying to contact one group of people or one yeah. family yeah and um yeah they, they, they've changed it a little their internal procedures are are better now but it, de it definitely still happens because every program wants yeah. their own exclusive yeah. interview with a family. And, and interestingly, I think the BBC, during the bomb, I think what they did was they grouped their approaches together. Yeah. So they had some sort of hub where sure. it was like one reporter was acting for everybody yeah. and, and doing it. Kind of pooled. It was pooled. Mm. So I think... And I know that the and they did the same that. thing at the time of the Grenfell fire as well. Where I mean, do you think it works? Is that is that the way that public pressure now is putting on us? I think there is an argument to say there are too many approaches going on by multiple media yeah. organisations, and it's it's you know it's not just newspapers. It's these days it's websites, it's broadcast, it's all of media. So I think the way the key to that is reporters should be able to approach families. And the reason I think that is important is because there are instances where families want to, want to talk 
about lapses by the emergency services or what happened or anything else, families should have the right to be able to contact the media. You know, and that was important during the Manchester Arena bomb because yeah. a lot of survivors were not happy with how the, the you know the fire brigade yeah. and the police mm -hmm. um, conducted themselves. So there has there's a balance to be struck, but at the same time, families should not have to have the door knock fifty times. You know that in those situations that isn't acceptable. So I think the way to do that is by ipso. Uh, and I know they're discussing this at the moment, uh, following the Kerr's Lake yeah, recommendations yeah, uh -huh. for the for the for the uh, which which was an independent review carried out after the Manchester Arena attack, and there were recommendations in there about how the media reacted and acted. And I think there's some valid points in there, and a lot of it I think is driven by these multiple approaches mm -hmm. by media organisations. And I think if if Ipso could pool. Um, approaches more, then it'd bring down the number of times families have been contacted, and I think that would hugely help. Yeah, I mean, I think they'd have to have a mechanism that they would be able to kick in kind of immediately, because inevitably something like Grenfell Tower or the arena bombing, the media are onto it very, very quickly, and mm. so would have to be Reactive. part of reacting really, really quickly. Mm. So, yeah. And we see it with things like, um, you know, D-Notice, the D-Notice mm -hmm. um, people, they work with the MOD, so it tends to be that when you've got something that affects national security, you know, you, you, know, you go to the MOD for a right of reply or whoever it is, and then a D-notice committee gets in yeah. touch with the organisation. So they, it's shown that organisations can react quickly and effectively to sort of control um, what, what newspapers publish. And, you know, the D-notice committee has been, is a really good thing in my view. And, and Ipso could work in the same way, you know, contacting pre-publication. But would that would the result of that be that people would see Ipso as a as a censor, which a lot of people do for the D notice? I'm sure that would be. And again, it's about having that balance, isn't it, of reporters being able to operate. And I think news organisations would understand that in situations like the Manchester Arena bomb or Grenfell. As long as content isn't neutered, I, I think publications would understand, you know, the necessity for it. So, for example, a lot of it is driven by competition between, for example, the Mirror wants what the Sun has, the Sun wants what the Mail has, uh, the BBC want IT, what, what ITV has, and everyone's going for that exclusive. If you cut out that competition and it's a level playing field, and it, you kind of operate on a situation where there are no exclusives here. You know, this is, we approach families and everybody shares. I think that would remove the competitive atmosphere that can exist amongst media organisations when things like this happen. Because it can become a bit of a bear pit, can't it? It can, and yeah. I think, and, and again, families get caught up in that. Yeah. And, and I don't think any, I think individual publications post Leveson, and most of them pre Leveson, but especially post, they act responsibly. From what I've seen, you don't get really reporters uh, hassling families. You get them approaching families, but going back again and again and trying to coax them or, or whatever, 
you don't get that because reporters a would be sacked and b most of them are trained and they've gone through their sort of media ethics and uh, they know the ipso code pretty well so you don't really get that but it's the collective kind of um environment where as i say you know you get cnn uh knocking on a door on an international story uh, and the bbc and itv and everybody's going for this kind of uh, competitive we need to get the interview and i think you could i think it so if they really took control at least on the press side of things they could get in control of that more and kind of um you know for the benefit of publication and because it benefit publications as well that kind of that don't get that interview you know because they'll suddenly they'll benefit by getting more content so it can work both ways. So yeah, that's David Collins from the, the Sunday Times, kind of partly looking back on his time at the Daily Mirror, but also, as, as we just heard there, looking at how Ipso might become a vehicle for trying to stop those kind of floods of phone calls and emails and text messages from the press and from other media outlets who want an interview with people, bereaved families after, after a tragedy like the arena bombing like the Grenfell Tower fire and so on. So um, I'm joined now by Eleanor Shember Critchley um, from here at MMU, from the Journalism Unit. Ellie, you've been doing research into how people who were caught up in the bombing, in the arena bombing, how they were being approached by the media, by journalists, and how they coped with that kind of avalanche of stuff. And you've been report doing that work with, with other colleagues here at the Journalism Unit. What, what sort of things did you find? It's quite a unique perspective which we've garnered and it comes from having practitioners, so practising journalists, for the first time being on the other side of journalist approaches. And it was observations of actually one of our students caught up in the bombing um, that prompted the research because of the speed and volume and aggression of the onslaught of approaches that the student received immediately after her posting on Twitter. And you, the sorts of stuff that you found was partly the kind of things that Bob Kerslake found as well in his report. But um, so we, the, the stu our students, kind of that was the experience of, of lots and lots of families. And you can read some of that stuff in the Kerslake report. But what about your own kind of recommendations? Because we heard there from, from David saying that maybe Ipso could become a channel for this and that bigger organisations like the BBC may have learned some of the lessons from the arena and from Grenfell Tower. What, what do you think? Um, I think David's um, conclusions are a little optimistic and perhaps a little bit analogue in his perspective. Um, what we found in our research was the, um, the multiple approaches and the immediacy that they happen in a very intense manner. I, I, I don't really understand how Ipso could have a role in managing that. Um, it's all well and good in terms of perhaps a mediation on who has the one interview with a bereaved family. But that happens pretty far down the line in terms of, of an ongoing news story. A lot happens before then that has the potential to cause great distress and in some cases be quite 
ethically unsound that we had concerns over when we were reading back through the messages, when we were talking to uh, the eyewitness and to the um, brother of, of, a, of a family member who, who was killed there. Um, what, what was clear was that also the notion that news organisations in the UK have a very structured approach to how they make these approaches is untrue. We did find one particular news organisation that, that had quite a, an established network of knowledge of who was making approaches and how they were being made. But quite surprisingly, for, for national broadcasters, for one of the interviewees, they were receiving multiple approaches on multiple social media channels. So if you imagine that to somebody who is a victim or an eyewitness whose adrenaline is already very high, to be receiving those multiple approaches in, in what feels very uncoordinated and also perhaps a, a strangely friendly way from people that they don't know is quite a stressful thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the pressure, you know, having worked in an environment like that. So I, I remember, for example... Uh, an outbreak of bird flu and we identified some of the people who were who were in hospital getting treatment and you know as, as a producer you want to approach the family but we knew also that the planning department in the newsroom we were supposed to channel it all through them and you're kind of going well let's just try anyway you know you can you can see the pressure from people and then but that means that the idea of kind of policing this and having a pipe like ipso that funnels all of this stuff to the family is uh, is it realistic no, I don't think it's realistic at all. I think what we're recommending as part of the research outcomes is that large organisations put together uh, almost a crisis strategy for dealing with um, large breaking stories like the Manchester Arena bombing and that they have a coordinated database of contacts which is being updated all the time by journalists on the ground and by editors of programmes or within the newsroom because that clearly isn't happening at the moment. That's a very simple step which would mean that the multiple approaches initially on social media because that's the most easiest way to make contact and for many people also the most acceptable way to make contact that that is streamlined much more. That has a greater benefit for the journalists because they're more likely to get something out of their interviewee because they're not under the same degree of onslaught. But I think it has to be seen in a global context. You know, one of our interviewees who woke up at 6.30 in the morning, their phone in meltdown, had multiple requests from international news agencies as well and so it's the understanding that journalists in the UK are not operating just within that environment but they're competing for the story with everybody else around the world. Yeah because a few years ago you if you were reporting on, a, on, on an earthquake or something in a dim and distant land you would never think of approaching residents of that town directly it would be unthinkable but now it's possible isn't it? It is and I think one really positive thing that has come from the research was that the interviewees were making um, very positive distinctions between UK journalists and rest of the world journalists. And so they were making their own editorial judgments on who they allowed co to contact with them. And um, by and large, they were differentiating the quality of the contact 
um, on social media to begin with uh, as being much higher in the UK than the rest of the world. So there are some things that are, that are going well, I think, uh, and some really good practice out there, but there is a, a lack of a central strategy within the newsroom on how those contacts are handled. So to coin a phrase, it's a developing story, really, from, you know, from our point of view, but also from the point of view of you know, victims' families and so on, but certainly from journalism point, point of view of journalists and big media organisations, still a lot to learn. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the outcomes of the research would be to bring together the recommendations for industry that we will take to the newsrooms. Um, when we've talked with um, participant newsrooms, they've been very interested in the approach that we're taking and the recommendations that are starting to come out, and they've already fed back to us how useful they will be. Okay. Ellie, thanks very much. Back to the studio. Thinking about, you know, the Ipso um, ideas around how we sensitively approach families and that I think that the sort of the time it would take to sort of coordinate that sort of um, that sort of action may mean that the 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 news the timeliness of the report might pass um, I, I think you were sort of alluding to that yeah I mean I, I think one of the problems really is Ipsos not there, there may be all sorts of problems we have with Ipso, but they're not mm. even set up to do mm. that. You know, they don't have that kind of capacity at the moment. So it would mean certainly widening their their ambit, wouldn't it? Yes, and obviously those those journalists who are not regulated by Ipso, um, you know, uh, where it, the, the possibility is that they will make their approaches mm. independently anyway and and cause harm for the for the industry as a as a whole. Really, you know, yeah. that would be my concern. Yeah, Dave. Well, I think it still has a role to play here. I understand Ellie's point, and I think the, the difficulties of having a pooling system will be in such a chaotic kind of a free fall after an incident is going to be difficult. But I think, you know, um, and as Jess points out, that the, it, it's going to be difficult to regulate international media and freelancers. Mm. Although, you know, uh, as publishers, we're not meant to take copy from freelancers if, it, if it's been obtained. Uh, against the code, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, looking back to, Ipsos does have a part to play, looking back to the, was it the Shore Emer disaster, the Thur Emer disaster, where, you know, a lot of the, uh, there was a lot of media coverage and one of the MPs got in touch with Ipso uh, and they basically called off the dogs, yeah. in fact, you know. So they can be cease and desist uh, uh, and hopefully that will be adhered to. So I think there's some role to play yeah. um, despite reservations. Yeah, and it's interesting that things are moving. I don't, there's, I don't think there's any question that things are changing. The environment's changing and the attitude of the public towards the, these questions is changing. And I think um, some of the people involved in the arena, affected by the, the arena attack, for example, are showing, are beginning to demonstrate much more kind of a savvy approach themselves to this kind of thing as well. As people mm. become more and more literate in social media, they're able yeah. to, to handle some of that some of that stuff themselves, but it very much depends on the circumstances. So mm. a reminder, you're listening to Bang to Rights from Manchester Metropolitan University's Journalism Unit. If you have a view on that, of course, please let us know on Twitter at RightsBang. Finally this week, another student question, this time from Alex Candlin, about the difficulties of gathering vox pops at demonstrations. Basically, he wants to know, should you as a journalist get into a debate with protesters? When I go to protest, most people are quite uh, most people are quite happy to talk um at the homeless one not too long ago and the um palestine one and the gi one because they went there to talk they weren't there for people to listen so that's um pretty fun that's pretty easy as well and also i, I quite enjoy enjoy doing them i'm not entirely sure why just uh i just like i just like doing them for some reason and and if you just if you just go up to them and uh, you tell them that 
but you're a student most of them are students and you just um act friendly and you just say hello and um most people are just happy to um to speak to you anyway and that but then you just make sure um do you mind if i film it it doesn't have to be filmed and it just gets people a bit comfortable and but most people are happy with it um i've only had like one or two people say no don't want it filmed um they're still happy to give their names and stuff Except the GI one, there's one GI one where a uh, guy used a lot of foul language, so I couldn't really use him. So, I didn't want to be filmed, so probably good reason. So. Yeah, I think the difficulty with, with sometimes with protesting demonstrations is, you know, as opposed to a Vox Pop where you've got you, you one on one, you know, very often you'll start talking to one person, then three people will start crowding around, and everyone's trying to pitch in the different views, yeah. and you're trying to, certainly in my experience, trying to go take it down in shorthand mm. uh, and just listen to four people talking at you at once. And that's the difficulty because everybody does want to talk and put across the viewpoints. And then you've got to go and potentially get the other side of the, mm. you know, the pro and anti. So it, it can be, you know, the logistics of it can be quite interesting. I would like, I would like, things like, that, like to get the other side um, as well. Most of, the, most of the process we've been to, it's just been one particular side and maybe one or two people passing by just have to just try and chip in a bit but i would like to see like two a protest and a counter process that would be great to jump between mm. the two well you can you, you there, will, there will be cases where you do that but i think one of the it, you you wouldn't want to probably get that alternative point of view at the demonstration you might call up the the opposition party or something like that and get their point of view on it rather than because i think it is if you start getting into debate with people on the street that's when you can get get into trouble a bit. It's, it's and it's messy for the story and it's messy for you. So yeah. yeah, just think about how you're going to get that alternative voice. But do go in with an idea about how you're going to get that without uh, getting into a, a bit of argy bargy with people. In a, a and, I th and I think covering a protest, your aim is different to doing a, a vox pop anyway. So what, picking up on what Day was saying about how people can crowd round and it can be difficult to get a sense of what's going on. In a way, when you're doing that sort of coverage, you're trying to get the temperature of the protest and the mood and the colour of it. Whereas with Vox Pops, you are pinning individual people down and get their, getting their views on a certain subject. Um, it's also, if you, particularly if you're doing a Vox Pop, it's worth being open to um, what people tell you because you never quite know where it might take you. And there's an example, um, Stuart Flinders, the... BBC Northwest Tonight reporter did a Vox Pop uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was it was the anniversary of the big Everton Liverpool derby, quite a famous football match. And he was asking people in Liverpool if they remembered the match. And he, he, one of his Vox Pops was this uh, old guy, retired guy, and he said, "Do you remember the match?" And the guy said, "I do remember it because I played in it." And he said, "Oh, what, what did you play?" He said, "I was the Liverpool goalkeeper." So. After the Vox Pop, he went and he did an interview with the guy, it was Tommy Lawrence, who was a famous footballer, but was now living a quiet life, retired and everything. So you never quite know where it might lead you. So be open to those little asides, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Listen out for stuff. Alex, thanks very much for, indeed for coming on uh, Bang to Rights. We'll hopefully have you back on in a couple of, uh, couple of weeks' time, maybe. Um, but uh, just as we always keep saying, if, if any of you have got any views on that discussion, any trouble you've had when you're out doing Vox Pops, or if you've got any other questions, um, tweet at us at, at RightsBang, or if you're on the MMU camp campus, come and see us, come and join in.
So that's Alex Candlin there. We hope Alex and earlier we heard from Sophia. I hope Alex and Sophia will come back on the programme and we hope that you'll come on the programme too or at least get in touch if you've got a question for us from your work. So just before we close for this week, Dave, Jez, our usual roundup of what's in store for students in the coming week in their law, ethics, media regulation lectures. Uh, Dave, what have you got? Uh, we'll be doing Gothcom next and uh, regulation of broadcasting. And Jez, what about yourself? And at level five, the students will be looking at uh, copyright. Yep. Um, Postgrads, we'll be looking at uh, contempt of courts. We'll be scaring the pants off them with, with that one. Um, but that's it for this week. Thanks very much, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, we're, Pete. we're Bang to Rights. Do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It means Bang to Rights will just pop up on your podcast feed as if by magic. You can also find us on Stitcher or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. Please leave us a rating. It helps spread the word and helps others find us. You can tweet us, as I said, at rightsbang. Let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.